We're on this, uh, again, for those who are visitors, those who are regulars, we're on this road trip through Romans. Uh, sometimes we get a couple miles, sometimes we, go out and we drive half a block, but we're, on, we're in this together as we go through the book of Romans. And, and I believe that as we go through this study, it'll, it'll impact you, it'll change you if you allow the Spirit of God to take the Word of God and bring about those lasting changes. It's an incredible study. Uh, and I don't feel many times that I'm even doing it justice, but yet uh, this, is, this is what the Lord has laid upon us as we go through this study, however long it takes. Romans chapter 1. We finished the introduction. We're beginning now in verse 18 through 32. In this... Uh, there's four major divisions in the book of Romans. In this first major division, it answers the question, is the whole world really lost? He has to bring man to realize that he is condemned before he can introduce him how to be justified. And so this first section, chapter 1, 18, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, is man really lost? The answer, of course, is yes, he really is but he's going to show us why here. So in this first section, chapter 1, 18 through 320, there's four categories of people. We're just looking at the first category here in verse chapter 1, 18 through 32. We're down to verse 24. I'm going to begin reading there if you would follow along. Therefore, God also gave them up, and I'll explain that in the message, to uncleanness, in the lusts of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen? For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the nat natural use of the woman, burned in their lusts for one another. Men with men, committing what is shameful, receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. By the way, I'm preaching on verse 26 and 27. Verse 28. Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind, to those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who, pra who practice them. May the Lord continue to add his blessings to his word. Father, I pray, as we come to you, that we will come with a bowed heart, that we will come with a teachable spirit as you continue to minister to us through your word. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Our ministry moment this morning. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, please. Romans chapter 1. We're in that section there in verses 24 uh, through 32 uh, in which we are introduced 
to the unbeliever who has never heard the gospel. Uh, the, the key to, to this section of the, the book is this Greek word, paradidomai. And it means to uh, pardon, or I'm sorry, to abandon, to give up, to hand over, to place under another's authority. And as you look at verse 24, therefore God also gave them up. Now therefore means it reaches back to something resulted in this happening. In other words, because they abandoned God first, because they turned their back on God, because they worshiped the creature, the creature more than the creator, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. The truth of God, the lie they exchanged it for was to worship self. So they, they, because they have done this, he gave them over. He gave them up. He abandoned them. He did not abandon them first. They abandoned him first. Uh, later, I think in the message, it says something to the effect that goes like this. When you fail to worship the creator of the universe, you begin to worship the creature of the universe. So God gave them over. Therefore, he gave them over to what? He gave them over to these consequences. These are the consequences of their unbelief. These are the, these are the consequences of their choices. So, verse 24, therefore God also gave them up. Verse 26, this will be the second division. This is the, where we're at today. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. Verse 28, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over. These, these, this is what happened. God gave them up. And each step as we go through this, it becomes a little more or a little worse as you go through this. It, 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 uh, it's like going down the stair steps. You're going down, not up. It's becoming worse and worse. Robert Louis Stevenson has this quote. He said, every man shall one day be seated at a banquet table of consequences. And this is the consequence. These are the consequences of them abandoning God. That God gave them up to these consequences. So what we're reading about here is the consequences of their choices. As I've said before, life is choices. Choices have consequences. Make right choices. Well, they made the wrong choice. They started to worship the creature rather than the creator. So, oops. So the wanton behavior of the unbeliever, verse 24 to 32, wanton has the idea of defiant, deliberate, associated maliciousness, wicked behavior, the wanton behavior of the unbeliever. We already looked at verse 24 and 25 to deliver them over to the immoral defilement. Now we're into verse 26 and 27, to deliver them up to immoral distortion. This passage of Scripture has become, in our generation, one of the most controversial in the entire Bible. And you say, Pastor Kendall, why is that? Because it condemns homosexuality. And uh, in studying and you know, preparing this, um, I, I want to be real careful what I say. Not out of fear, but be sensitive to who's here. Not talking about homosexuals, but there are tender ears also here. Some of you will walk away and say, Pastor, you didn't say enough, and some of you will say, you said too much. So I tried to strike a balance, but, at, but still 
pull out. I still want to exegete the scripture, and I think you'll get the point. This is a difficult subject. Uh, I was telling somebody that some of the things that, that uh, I read that came up in, for instance, vile passions, shameful behavior, I can't even share with you. It's, it's one of those things you read through it and you, you feel like you needed to take a shower. But it's that vile. I, I cannot say it any other way. So, let's take a plunge and look into the scriptures here. The first thing uh, I wanted to do, or I'm going to do is, I'm just going to go verse by verse. We're going to, you know, and I'm not picking out, pulling out each word and thing is in there, but I, but I, there, I want to go through the verse uh, verses themselves, and then we'll talk about some other things related to that. So, for, for instance, let's go to verse uh, 26. Let's take the first phrase. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. Reason is consequences. The consequences of the exchange, as you look back in verse 25, says, who have exchanged the truth of God for the lie. The consequences of that exchange is God has given them over here to vile passions. God delivered them over. Vile passions. What does vile mean? Disgusting. Morally and physically repulsive. Degrading. Sometimes that word is also translated function. Things not spoken of in polite conversations. This, this, the, the essence of the word has to do with sexual overtones. Passions. These are overpowering desires. They're intense. They're internal desires that will not rest until satisfied. Earlier in verse 24, we talked about lust. Different word here for passions. Lust is a consuming desire. And, I, and again, they're very closely related, but lust is a consuming desire. Passion is a controlling desire. See, there's a consuming desire, but passions is a controlling desire. The point being is, he's given them over to vile passions that controls them. Or if you want to put it in a way, they're out of control. Verse 26b, for even their women exchange the natural use for what is against nature. Yes, this is talking about lesbianism. Exchanged. Again, we have that word. To replace one activity with another. Exchanged from heterosexuality to homosexuality. The word natural. Even the woman exchanged the natural use. Natural, that which is in harmony with nature. That which one, that which one does out of instinct that which was the way God created and intended it to be. Genesis chapter 1, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. In chap Genesis chapter 1 is kind of like an overview of creation. Chapter 2 fills in the blanks. In other words, fills in the details. So in chapter 1 we find out that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female, because he realized that man was without a mate, so he created female. 
Then when you get into chapter 2, well, fills in, kind of fills in some of the blanks. He says in verse 18 of chapter 2, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the, of the air, and brought them to Adam to see what he would, would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was the name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, to every beast in the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. He took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to, to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She'll, she, she shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Verse 24. This is, should be a familiar verse to you. Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That, that is talking about the intimate relationship between a husband and a wife. Christ affirms this uh, in the New Testament when he's talking about marriage or talking about a wedding, but he adds to it the, the permanent nature of it. And then again, it's affirmed by Paul in Ephesians chapter 4 when he talks about the intimate relationship between Christ and the church. That's what a marriage between the husband and wife is to, to symbolize or to represent. We should see in a godly marriage the same relationship that Christ desires to have with his church for this reason. So this, this was God's plan. This was God's intent. He, he didn't have plan A and plan B. He had plan A, and this was plan A. That's why it uses the word exchange. In other words, man exchanged. Man had plan B, not God. The point is, I'm sorry, let me, let me finish here. Uh, exchange, natural, and use. This, this has to do with intimate sexual relations. Against nature, or unnatural. The same word translated nature with a negative prefix, unnatural, against nature, contrary, uh, uh, abnormal, or twisted. It's not the way it was intended. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. The point is, I believe, is this. The perverted use of one's body and not the, the use specified in God's plan in order for men and women who were created in his image. Charles Hodge makes an interesting observation. He is a uh, wrote a commentary in Romans, he said, Paul first refers to the degeneration of females among the heathen because they are always the last to be affected in the decay of morals, and their corruption is therefore proof all virtue is lost. Because I wonder myself, why does he start off with females? Is he just picking on women? But as Charles Hodge said, because they are always the last to be affected in the decay of morals, and their corruption is therefore proof that all virtue is lost. And here we are today. Just think of it this way. Homosexuality condemned. Homosexuality tolerated. Homosexuality accepted. Homosexuality approved. 
the, the gradation of it or degradation of it. And this is where we're at today. They want approval. Verse 27. Verse 27 removes all doubt. Just in case you didn't, you say, I don't see that in verse 26. Verse 27 removes all doubt of exactly what Paul is talking about. He says in 26 or 27a, likewise, in other words, just like the females, likewise, also men, leaving the natural use of women. Likewise, that's way, in the same way as females abandon the natural function of fulfilling their, their uh, uh, disgraced passions with women, so too males with other males. Men, male gender, male sex, not the world of mankind or humanity. This is specifically talking to and about men. Leaving. This is interesting because this comes into play with the argument of it's, I was born this way, which we'll talk about a little bit later. So just get over it. It's the way I am. And the, the leaving is, it's an aorist tense, which simply means this. It's a decisive act. It's, just, it's a choice that takes place now, continues on. But it's also active voice, which simply means this. It's a willful choice. Active voice, aorist tense. This is a willful choice. Leaving. Likewise, also men, leaving the natural use of women. Natural, of course, is not only is homosexually a willful choice. It's one that completely reverses the natural order of creation. It reverses the natural order of creation. Likewise, also men, leaving the natural use of women. Verse 27b, burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful, Burned is a consuming passion, a controlling lust, a controlling desire, like a forest fire burning across the hills and valleys of a mountain range out of control, uninhibited, unhindered, the flame reaching out for more, jumping from treetop to treetop, burned for one another. This is the, of the same kind. Men of men, Homosexuality was common in the first century Rome. Because here's another argument sometimes used. Paul is, why is Paul addressing something that's not happening? Well, the truth of the matter is it was happening. It had happened in Greece. It was happening in Rome at the very time that he wrote. It was happening. It's happening today, which affirms, again, the scripture is relevant this wasn't, this, yes, it was written in the first century, but it's relevant for day in the 21st century. It's just as true today as it was then. Homosexuality was common in the first century Rome, is often spoken of without shame by Roman writers. It was prohibited neither by 
religion, nor law, and was openly acknowledged without shame. At different times, the Roman Empire taxed approved homosexual prostitution. Even same-sex marriages were legally recognized, and several of the Roman empires married men. Nero, who was in power at that time, the emperor at the time of Paul's writing, had a very public, full-blown wedding ceremony to a man. I can't... I can't read the rest. But I think you get the point. Albert Barnes, theologian and scholar, wrote, there's ample evidence this, this abnormal vice was not only confined to Rome. Another writer put it this way, check out the Roman Empire before it completely crumbles into dust. Go to Rome. See all the sites, what's left of them. What's that from? The decay within. And homosexuality is that. In Genesis 19, of course, is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. The homosexuals of Sodom in in chapter 19 were so passionately consumed with their lust that they ignored the fact that they had been made blind. Instead, they literally wearied themselves trying to find the doorway into Lot's house to gratify their perverted cravings. They They were so consumed with this passion, this vile passion, even though they were struck blind, they still clamored to, to, and clawed at Lot's door to get in there and get these two men that had come to the city. Burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful. The word shameful, yes, homosexuality is shameful. It's disgusting. Committing what is shameful, this description of their, their behavior toward one another. And then the last part of verse 27. And receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. Another example of, of the law of sowing and reaping. What you sow, you will reap. You sow to the flesh, you reap corruption. John MacArthur summarized the statement that I think hits the mark. He says this, God so abhors homosexuality that he determined that the disgraceful, shameful acts that women commit with women and men commit with men would result in their receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error, the shameful things they do to each other, which I cannot, I cannot even share with you. They would be judged by the self-destructiveness of their sin. The appalling physical consequences of homosexuality are visible evidence of God's righteous condemnation. Unnatural vice brings its own perverted reward. AIDS is frightening evidence of that final fatal promise. And that's only one. There's, I, there's so much more to be said. <clears throat> let, me, let me 
I want to go to something else. The homosexual, the homosexual crowd, or supporters of it, even though they may not be homosexual, present really four arguments for the acceptance of homosexuality. They present a lot of arguments, but four of them I'm going to explore today that seem to be the primary arguments for the acceptance of homosexuality. And you will see in their arguments their twisted theology or pseudo-theology. They're twisted of the scriptures itself. First argument. The Bible does not condemn homosexuality, only homosexuals who act selfishly. This is who they quote, a man by the name of Boswell. He's a pseudo-Bible scholar. This is what he says. The men of Sodom, listen to this, if you know the story, you're going to go, what? The Bible does not condemn homosexuality, only homosexuals who, are, who, who act selfishly. Boswell says, the men of Sodom were not punished in the Old Testament for their homosexuality, but for their inhospitality. You go, what? I'm not making this up. This is what they've done to Scripture because they have an agenda. They have to twist it to support their cause. Let me read Genesis 19. I already made reference to it before. Verse 1. Two angels came to Sodom in the evening. Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet then you may raise, uh, rise up early and go on your way. They said, no, we'll spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house. There, no one was left out. The city, the city was consumed with this passion. And they called a lot in verse 5. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may, and this is a key word, know them. Lot went out to the man at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do whatever you please with them. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. And this is the, the, the despicable nature of Lot himself living in that culture and tolerating it, accepting it, even approving of it, that he could come to the place where he would give up his own daughters. Think about it. But they said, stand back. This fellow came to sojourn, speaking of Lot, they said, this fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge. Now we'll deal worse with you than with them. Then they, that's speaking of the two men who came in the house, two angels, pressed hard, then they, I'm sorry, the, the Sodomites, 
They pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men, that is the two angels, reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. I see this picture of them scratching at the door and and their hands even bleeding because of the fact they are so consumed with their passions. Okay, what's the answer? This is not in hospitality. It was unrestrained lust and perversion. These men so craved to sodomize the angels that even after being blinded, their lust continued to drive them toward their evil intentions. Those seeking to justify homosexuality behavior will say, there's no reason to believe that sexual relations was part of the picture. They continue with this explanation. The words used in verse 5 translated, bring them out to us that we may know them. The word know does not have to mean anything other than let's get acquainted. However, the word is yada. It's the, it is used as Lot tried to get them to take his two daughters, saying in verse 8, they have not known, they have not known, they have not yada man. What was he talking about? The New Testament book of Jude provides additional commentary as we ter- interpret Scripture with Scripture. The, the book of Jude, the verse 7, <coughs> provides additional commentary. It says, listen to this, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. This was not in hospitality. This was homosexuality. This is sin. So that's the first argument they try to use. And if you haven't heard it, you will, or you will pick up on the reinterpretation of Scripture. Second argument. A homosexual is born that way and cannot change. This, of course, I believe is the key issue, personally. Because if you cannot change, then it's not a choice, correct? If I cannot change, then it's not a choice. You simply cannot help it, so that's just the way I am. A man or woman may, from a very early age, have a propensity toward a certain sin. In fact, Hebrews 12.11 says, or indicates, that we struggle with besetting sin that so easily entangles us. We, some of us, or all of us, to a certain extent, we have certain sins that we struggle with more than others. True? Yes. That's what Hebrews 12 says. This is reference to that particular sin which brings us into intense struggle with sinful urges and temptations. A person, however, is no more born a homosexual than he's born an adulterer, or a liar, or a pornographer, or a polygamist. Why don't they use the argument? Well, I was born a polygamist. I was born a rapist. You can't convict me. You think, well, that's stupid, that's silly. It's the same argument homosexuals are using. 
Rather, he chooses to be a liar. He chooses to commit adultery. He chooses to rape. All sin, all sin, and I'm saying this as a blanket statement, as I understand Scripture, all sin is a choice. Now, we may have some that beset us greater than others, but the point is, it's still a choice. Temptation is not the sin. The sin is giving in to the temptation, the choosing to sin. A person, however, is no more born a homosexual than he's born an adulterer, a liar, a pornographer, a polygamist. No sinner can change a part, no sinner can change apart from the power of God through the saving redemption of Jesus Christ and daily admission, submission to the Holy Spirit. Whether it's politically correct or not, the Bible never refers to homosexuality as a genetic issue or a sickness. It's always called a sin. And that happens to be wonderful news. Why, you say? Sickness may have a cure, or sickness, I'm sorry, may not have a cure. Genetic problems may never be resolved, but sin can be cured. There's a remedy for sin. Paul wrote, and this is a great scripture, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9-11. to He writes, this is a condemnation. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindles will inherit the kingdom of God. All were some of you. None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. But notice he says, all were some of you. He didn't say, such are some of you, because he's writing to believers. He said, all such were some of you. What happened? Verse 11, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. What happened? Christ came in. That divine intervention. He did for man what man could not do for himself. But God demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There's hope, even in their condemnation. The Bible never tells us to accept each other's behavior when to violate scripture. In fact, it simply tells us to confess, repent, and experience the daily forgiveness and power of the Lord Jesus Christ. But pastor, you, you need to read the study of hypothalamus. And you're going, what? Hypothalamus? This is secretion of the brain responsible for the hormone production. This is the thesis. Those that have a larger hypothalamus are more prone to homosexuality. And what happened was the pro-homosexuals jumped on that thesis and see, see, that proves it. But they didn't read the rest of the study. The rest of the study simply goes on to to say the, the study is inconclusive, it's incomplete. It's a great thesis statement. And everybody jumped on board and ignored the evidence, which there is none. It's like the advertisement for some type of uh, 
medication you're going to take. And, you know, and on the TV, the advertising, they say, but by the way, if you take this, you might be prone to depression, suicidal. You're going like, why would anybody want to take that? So another argument is that a homosexual is born that way and cannot change. Third, Jesus never uttered one word against homosexuality, so he cannot be against it. Do you realize that's true? Not all the statement, only the first half. He never uttered, but also he never uttered one word against rape, incest, bestiality, pedophilia. So are we supposed to not be against those either? This is amazing. There's a group of churches called the Metropolitan Community Churches. They're churches led by homosexual clergy, filled with homosexual members. They spend enormous energy attempting to join homosexuality with the evangelical church. One of their, their small group study guides is on what the Bible does and does not say about homosexuality. It not only presents the typical arguments for legitimizing evil, but implies that David and Jonathan loved each other in a homosexual way. The study even implied that a lesbian relationship was perhaps the basis of love between Ruth and Naomi. I mean, talk about twisting Scripture. Talk about the perversion of Scripture because of your perverted lifestyle. On the last page of that small group Bible study were these words about the church. Whoever you are, wherever you may be, whatever the circumstances of your life, it is important for you to know that Jesus Christ died to take away your sins, not your sexuality. Christ accepts you as you are, and so do we. A half-truth is still a whole lie. There's a vast difference between saying Jesus Christ accepts you as you are and Jesus Christ accepts anything you want to do. Jesus Christ does not promise you freedom in sin, or even to sin, but freedom from sin. He didn't save us to continue in sin. Paul addresses this in Romans chapter 6. The license and liberty. This gives me license and liberty. No, it doesn't. He saved us out of sin. He saved us out of the world, out of that influence. He accepts the homosexual who comes to him in repentance and confession of sin, just like he accepts the murderer, the rapist, the greedy, the gossip, and the arrogant. That's why we use that expression. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. We all had to come in the same way. I mean, if you're here and you don't know Christ, your personal Savior, you had to come to Christ just like I did. Repent, repent, confess, and believe. In the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Savior of the world. Remember the woman that was caught in adultery? Jesus said to her, go and sin some more. No, she said, he said to her, no, go and sin no more. The fourth argument they try to use a homosexual is merely doing what comes naturally. Thus should be considered an alternative lifestyle. This is the acceptance now leading to approval. 
The attempt is to prove from Romans chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, that Paul is condemning unnatural homosexual behavior, greedy, lustful, multiple-partnered homosexual behavior, or that he is condemning homosexual acts performed by heterosexuals to whom such acts are unnatural. This is very twisted exegesis. It's clever, but it ignores the meaning of the words. Paul, in fact, goes to the order of nature and says that females abandon nature, males abandon nature, burning their lust toward one another, which is unnatural or literally against the order of nature as God created it. Notice the language in the verses. Vile passions exchange the natural use, burned in their desire, committing what is shameful, receiving in themselves the penalty of their error. When you ignore the creator of nature, you will violate the order of nature, and you will sit down to a table of awful consequences. But there's more. They say homosexual behavior is biological alluring to them. It comes naturally to them. Thus, they are merely going along with their nature. Does the Lord say, listen, since lusting after women comes naturally to you, it's okay. Since coveting after things that belong to your, nature, your neighbor comes naturally to you, I understand. Should a man be allowed to rape simply because he is biologically alluring to him? Are not adulterers and fornicators doing what is biologically tempting to them? This is going to blow your mind, but you know what I'm going to say because you know it's true. All sin comes naturally. Because we're totally depraved. All sin comes naturally. Every one of us has desperately wicked hearts. Left to natural urges, natural temptations, and natural leanings would be capable of every sin under heaven. We do not determine what is acceptable behavior based on what comes naturally. The Bible informs us that our nature is fallen. We are the last people in the world that we would want to trust. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, Paul writes, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. The church is not to condone the nature of man, but condemn it. And reveal its evil and expose its need for redemption. And then point to the Savior who died to take away the sin of the world. In our bylaws, in the section concerning contemporary issues, we have written this paragraph about homosexuality. Contrary to the increasing accepted view of our fallen culture, the dishonest attempts to interpret it otherwise, the Bible consistently and unequivocally condemns the practice of homosexual relations. 
as with the rest of fallen humanity, homosexuals are in need of the redemption and forgiveness of sins that are made available through faith in Christ. However, as God's obedient children, we strive to manifest the love of Christ in the hopes of wooing them, as well as everyone else outside of Christ, to faith in him. All are welcome to attend our services and hear the gospel message of freedom through Christ. We also condemn any hate crimes that have been perpetuated against human beings because of their lifestyle. What if a homosexual showed up at church? Well, first of all, I doubt very much what you'd be able to identify them. You wouldn't know. What if a murderer showed up at church? How would you respond to them? Could they come to church? Yes. This is what I've done. Because we've had lesbians as well as homosexuals come to church here. All are welcome. But they are not welcome to promote their lifestyle. I remember specifically one individual who came really tried to twist the scriptures. And we told them, you cannot come back. Pastor, where's your love in that? I'm not going to allow, as, as a shepherd of the sheep, I don't want a wolf to come in in sheep's clothing and disturb and twist scriptures and possibly influence someone in the wrong way. I have that responsibility. But at the same time, we've had individuals come in who have sat there attentively listening and even have come for counsel. How can I change? It's not that we are accepting their sin, but we are loving the person. And this, this is God. This is Christ. You look at his ministry. He hates sin, but he still loves the sinner. We have that same responsibility. We live in a dark world, as I said before. It's getting darker. But we should be able to still shine as a light. A light in a dark place. Let me leave you with these three principles. When God's word is rejected, the depravity in a person's life can be unbelievable. Just as I said, some of those things I could not read. When God's design for relationships is refused, they change the, exchange the truth of God for a lie. When God's design for relationships is refused, the destruction of a person's life will be inevitable. Some of it, they will even suffer physically here on this earth. In fact, I, I read something I thought was interesting. The average age of those involved in homosexuality of death is in the 30s. If they don't have AIDS, it's in the 40s. Can you imagine having that short of a life expectancy? That's, poor, that's part of the condemnation, the results of the lifestyle they've chosen. So when God's design for relationships is refused, the destruction of a person's life will be inevitable. There's a terrible personal destruction and, and disease. There's a terrible loss of personal dignity. There's a terrible loss of healthy relationships. But that's not the greatest loss. It's only the beginning. There's the eternal loss of heaven. 
because unrepentant sinners, Paul clearly said, will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Thirdly, when God's word is received, the difference in a person's life becomes remarkable. 2 Corinthians 5.17, some of you memorized it. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things passed away, behold, all things become new. It doesn't matter if you're here this morning, you're a homosexual, you're an adulterer, you're a liar, you're a gossip, you may be involved in some gross sin or some what we don't call gross sin, but nonetheless you're involved in a sinful lifestyle. Repent. Confess. Forsake. Replace. Did I say too much? Did I not say enough? It started as a condemnation. It became tolerated, accepted. Now they want approval. We have to keep coming back to the Word. What does the Word say? What does it teach? What does it mean? How does it apply? It doesn't make us holier than thou. As I said, we had to come to Christ the same way. We had to repent. And indeed, we've been changed. And as Paul said there in Ephesians chapter 2, he says, you need to start to live like it. (laughs) You need to start to live like it. Father, I pray as we close our service this morning, again, the darker the night, the brighter the light. Indeed, we have the light. We are a city on a hill. Father, I pray that our light may shine with love, but also with conviction. That we may lovingly present the gospel as we encounter as we confront sin itself. Father, I pray for each individual here, Lord, I pray that you may work in their hearts and their lives. I pray that you will set that hedge of protection of holiness round about us. Protect us from evil, from evil one, the evil people, evil attitudes. But even more importantly than that, Lord, that holiness that surrounds us may be also internal that we may ourselves pursue holiness, that we may love what you love and hate what you hate. And continue on with our mission, even as Paul said, pray for me that I will be bold and that God would give me the right words as we go forth. In Christ's name we pray, amen.